You're listening to the feed. This is the feed. This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed in Markham, in Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan, in Stouffville, in Woodbridge, in Unionville. You're listening to 1059 The Region. I'm station manager Tina Cortez, and this is The Feed. We are York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues and events that matter to all of us who live and work here. Coming up today, if you know someone not only in need, but deserving of a home renovation, stay tuned for our preview of a new show coming to HGTV. Also on the show, the Children First Canada Report and the top 10 list of threats to Canadian children. And still ahead, how to care for your lawn heading into fall. But we begin with a focus on the big screen. The Toronto International Film Festival is now underway and joining us to talk movies and stars is Cam Maitland, film and content specialist from Hollywood Suite. Cam, welcome to the feed. Oh, thanks for having me. So let's start with, you know, the nuts and bolts of the Film Festival 2019. What's going on? What should we anticipate? Well, I mean, like every year, it's a massive film festival. Uh, there's so many titles. Uh, all the celebrities come out. This is really the start of awards season. So you're seeing everybody come to Toronto. Uh, it's always a busy season. Uh, it starts right now. It's already going on, and it goes till September 15th. Um, yeah, you're going to see people all over the city of Toronto lining up for movies, trying to get into movies. Uh, Festival Street, of course, is open uh, till September 8th. That's just King Street right around the festival. All sorts of brands and activations and movies promoting themselves. Just the whole city turns into film festival mode up until the 15th. So what are the big movies and movie stars to watch for this weekend? Sure. Uh, I think the biggest, the one on everyone's lips, especially since the Venice Film Festival, is interestingly The Joker, uh, Joaquin Phoenix's film. He's going to receive an award at TIFF, so he'll be here. Uh, the film has been praised hugely. A lot of people didn't expect it for kind of a superhero movie, but uh, his performance and the film have gotten a lot of acclaim so far, so I think a lot of people are on the edge of the seat to that one. Uh, you've also got Hustlers, which is bringing a ton of people to town. Uh, this is a film starring Jennifer Lopez, but it also has people like Constance Wu, Lily Reinhardt, Lizzo, lots of big celebrities in that cast. That one's premiering. They'll probably be mingling around, and of course all those people tend to have uh, famous... Uh, <laughs> you know, partners. Uh, so I think a lot of people are keeping their eyes out for potentially Nick Jonas because Priyanka Chopra has a film. Uh, Joe Alwyn has a film who's dating Taylor Swift. So, you know, you never know who's going to show up at this. Is there anything in particular that you're looking forward to? Yeah, you know, there's quite a few, but uh, one that really sticks out is uh, Knives Out. It's kind of a murder mystery comedy by Ryan Johnson, who a lot of people know from The Last Jedi, directing that big Star Wars movie. But he was a big indie director for a long time and a big favorite of mine. And he started off in mysteries. So I think it's really going to be great. It has a huge cast of stars, Daniel Craig, Chris Evans, Jamie Lee Curtis. I think it's really going to be something to watch out for. And what about the Robbie Robertson documentary? Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's a huge boon as an opening film. A lot of people, uh, you know, we want to have a Canadian film opening, and uh, this is a great chance to show a Canadian icon and talk about the band. Uh, it's going to be coming to Netflix as well, so it's a great one for people who might not be able to make it to TIFF who uh, want to catch it later on. And Cam, what do you think makes this festival so special and so important? Well, I think what is very important from an industry standpoint is uh, this is the largest publicly attended festival. Uh, so that means there are just regular people watching these movies. You hear a lot about Cannes, you hear a lot about Sundance, but compared to TIFF, uh, you're often just getting industry people or the very wealthy. Uh, TIFF has about 400,000 people just attending. So this is a lot of people's chance to see how their movie plays in front of a crowd. Um, so this is also really because of that where award season starts. Uh, the industry is really looking to how people react to the movies, uh, what stars and what roles they really turn to. So uh, for me, as somebody who is very involved in award season, it, it's very important to watch TIFF and kind of see how the crowd reacts. It really makes a huge difference in how a movie does at the box office. And you've followed this festival over the years. How have you seen it grow and change? 
Well, I think the big thing is is people want their movies to premiere now at TIFF. TIFF used to be part of the conversation for sure, but big festivals like Venice uh, and Cannes would get a lot of the premieres. Uh, now, if you're a North American movie, TIFF is definitely the place you want to be. You definitely see them wanting that crowd buzz, that word of mouth. Social media, of course, has made a big difference. TIFF has just kind of become an all-encompassing thing. If you follow the hashtags, you're seeing... Uh, the, the narrative that will carry through the whole rest of the year starting at TIFF. And is it not true that the movies that do well at TIFF often go on to do really well come award season? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the big thing to watch out for is the People's Choice Award. It's the kind of big uh, audience-voted award winner at the end. It's a great predictor for Best Picture at the Oscars, especially. Um, for instance, Green Book last year won it. Uh, it can often be very interesting and surprising, too. Uh, I don't think that anyone is a very good predictor of what will uh, win the People's Choice Award, but then the People's Choice Award, it's... Uh, almost, you know, 90% likely to at least be nominated for Best Picture, if not win it. Now, you already dropped a few names of, you know, the stars to watch for. Any other big names coming to town? Well, I mean, one of the big ones is Meryl Streep is coming uh, with Steven Soderbergh's film The Laundromat. Tiff is also presenting a tribute acting award. It's the first time they've done this, kind of a, a lifetime achievement to her. Uh, Bruce Springsteen is coming. That's kind of an interesting one. He has a film playing of a private concert he did. Uh, Tom Hanks, of course, is coming. He has a beautiful day in the neighborhood where he plays Mr. Rogers. So that's a pretty big get as well. Where did this love of movies come from for you personally? You know what? Uh, honestly, watching movies on TV, I know that sounds corny. <laughs> I work for a movie TV channel, but that was something I always loved uh, as a kid and with my family, just gathering around and kind of watching old movies. Uh, I grew up at a time where there was tons of movie theaters, so it was really easy to go out and you know spend your afternoon as a kid. And uh, yeah, I don't know, it just really dug into me, and I, I love I love working on them. And what does TIFF mean to Hollywood Suite, and how will the channel be celebrating this time in film? Well, we we're one of the biggest broadcasters of Canadian films, so we really keep an eye out on the Canadian selection. Um, we love showing movies that have been at TIFF and really love to pay attention to it. We also, for the past few years, have gone to the BAFTA Awards and the Independent Spirit Awards, so we really pay attention to kind of what is coming up so we can be ready for the red carpet there. One last question. If our listeners want more information about Hollywood Suite, where can they go? Uh, just go to hollywoodsuite.ca or follow us on any social media at Hollywood Suite. Cam, thanks so much for doing this, and we can't wait to have you back to talk film. Well, thanks for having me. Next on the feed on 105.9 The Region, we move from the big screen to the small screen. Our Jim Lang with a new home renovation show. I'm a sucker for feel-good shows, especially about home renovation. My wife and I... <laughs> are sort of addicted to it, and it's a real thrill to speak to someone who's become synonymous with, uh, I guess, greatness and entertainment and the, the beauty of your home in Canada, Cheryl Hickey, who's going to be heading up something called Big Home Overhaul on HGTV, and she joins us on the feed. Cheryl, how are you? I'm good. How are you? What a nice intro. I mean, well, that, I mean nice. that was really nice. I mean, you deserve it, and I love the concept of this, Cheryl, a feel-good renovation okay. series, and we need some feel-good stories in our lives, and that's what I like about it, and especially, I know the home renovation feel-good stories, we love it. I know how much home and being spending time with the family means to you. Is that what drew you to being part of this project? You know what? 100%. You're, you've hit on a couple of points. The world um, really needs right now some feel-good stories. Um, and, and stories talking about families doing beautiful things and giving back, and also a community wrapping a family in love and helping them in some of their darkest times. And really, that's what the show is about. And HDTV Canada is looking for people out there, whoever's listening today on their morning commute, to nominate a deserving family in your neighborhood who need a really major uh, home makeover. So the question we're asking everybody is, who in your community is always giving back? Who has come through in hard times could use an epic renovation by HGTV Canada's biggest stars? We want to hear about these people, and people can nominate them at homerenohelp.com. 
That's homerenohelp.com, and you can nominate someone in your region, as Cheryl mentioned, that you feel is deserving, maybe has gone through a lot, uh, does a lot without asking something, and giving them the surprise of a life. And whether it's renovating the garage or part of the house or the rec room or the bathroom, it would mean so much to a lot of these families that you're talking about, Cheryl. It's It must be one of those things that you just get excited thinking about the looks in the people's faces after the work is done. Well, yeah. I mean, these are these families who are constantly giving back and taking care of their community and volunteering their time. Meanwhile, they could really use some help at home. A lot of these people are never thinking about themselves uh, because they're so busy thinking about everybody else. We all know these people in our community, and they're so fantastic. But, you know, they often don't get the light on them. So this is a beautiful opportunity for that to happen. Uh, it's homerentalhelp.com, and Cheryl, I imagine you and the producers at HDTV and the staff might have a hard time sifting through all the nominations and entrants to pick out a few homes to renovate. Listen, it's a really emotional process, I'm not going to lie. It's something that, you know, you hear about all these families and all the really wonderful things you're, they're doing, and certainly about the hardships that they're going through. But in all of it, there's a running theme, which is there's hope and there's community, and there's love. And you leave watching the families thinking, wow, I can do better. I know I could do more. So this series is really all about that, and it's celebrating those families. And some of the biggest um, stars on HGTV Canada and designers and contractors are going to be wrapping them up in love and making their homes a sanctuary so they can continue to go out there and do the really great work that they're doing in the community. So it's just it's just one of those projects that I just couldn't be more proud to be a part of. And it's again, if anybody knows a family that they feel is deserving, please nominate them at homerentalhelp.com. Now, Cheryl, is Scott McGilvery part of this? Because my wife is in love with him. I love you, Jim. And I want to tell you all of the stars who were on it. But there's got to be some elements of surprise, okay, okay. don't you think? <laughs> okay, absolutely. The show will debut next spring, the spring of 2020. Each one-hour episode will feature a new family, their story in their location, and how people nominated them mm-hmm. and how HCTV helped them in a show called Big Home Overall. I'm very excited about it. The whole concept is amazing. Cheryl Hickey is uh, synonymous with greatness in this country and television. And anything she's a part of oh. is a home run and I know this is going to be a big hit Cheryl well it's one of those shows you know that I think we all have that tingly feeling right now and know that family home overhaul is going to be something really special and it's going to be TV that you're going to mark on your calendar and be like oh we need to watch this it'll bring the family together and it's really a program that the whole family can watch about watch together and it will be great for kids to learn about giving and kindness and it'll start a really great conversation in the home um, so it's, it's, it's going to be really exciting. I, as you can tell, I'm a little bit pumped about it. No, Cheryl, as well, you should be. Get those nominations in right now. HomeRenoHelp.com to be part of HETV's exciting new show for 2020, Big Home Overall. Cheryl Hickey, always a pleasure. Congratulations and good success with the new show. Uh, thanks so much. And uh, we'll see everybody soon. Next on the feed, we're going to focus on how to prepare our lawns moving into the fall season. And joining us next is Kyle Tobin, and he's back from Lawn Savers. Nice to have you back, Kyle. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, so let's get to it. Now that we're moving away from the summer season and into the fall, what work needs to be put into our lawns? So the biggest thing that people need to remember is that you need to keep going. If you haven't developed a good routine yet... Now's the time to start because the fall is the most forgiving time to take care of your lawn. Okay, so what's the routine? So the routine should be at any time of the year, come spring through fall, is to be mowing your lawn on a regular basis. And that could be every five to seven days. The reason why we say every five to seven days is because that depends on how fast your lawn's growing. In the fall, we have warm soil temperatures, cool air temperatures, and that promotes active growing of plants. So turf grass is just a forest of turf grass lawn plants. That's what a lawn is. And it's going to be really actively growing. And this is your key time to be able to make a difference, thicken it up, 
getting rid of problems that you've had that have been caused through the summer. Okay, so let's just take a step back into the summer. What was it like in your industry? So this summer, particularly in 2019, had a lot of dry, hot weather. And it's important to remember that lawns in southern Ontario and the GTA are what we call cool season grasses. So these grasses are adept at surviving through the winter, but they cannot take high, high amounts of heat and a lack of moisture. If you contrast that with people that go to Florida and you see the thick Bermuda grass and zoysia grass and things like that, those ones are adept at withstanding high heat, but they would never survive through one of our winters. They can't take cold temperatures whatsoever. So when we have cool season grasses, it's important to know what's required for them. And proper mowing at the right height of three inches is critical all season long, including through this fall. And that's a big myth out there is in the fall, you should mow shorter. Please don't mow shorter in the fall. You're going to hurt your grass and harm the root growth. But if, okay? I, if I cut it shorter, doesn't it mean that I have to cut it less often and it will survive the winter? I guess not. It's kind of like your hair. Okay. If you cut it any shorter, no matter what the length, it's going to grow at the rate that it's going to grow at. But the biggest benefit, the advantage to having long grass, is that that is its food source. That The longer the grass, the longer the roots. That's a good rule of thumb to be thinking about. So if you're at three inches, that should be the top setting of your lawnmower or the second highest. You can mow more frequently, and in fact, golf courses do that. That's how you get a nice thick lawn. But mow frequently at a high height, and you will have a much thicker, more beautiful, luscious lawn. Fall is the time to kind of take an inventory and see what has happened so that can inform what we do. So when we get really hot, dry weather, it could be simply drought where your lawn's gone dormant, and so you have brown spots. But it could also be chinch bug. Chinch bugs love high heat, and they're a very, very common pest. You can't really see them. I was going to ask you, are they visible? Very difficult to see. You have to get on your hands and knees. We call it the butt test. Your butt needs to be up in the air, and you need to be down looking. Yikes. Right? When you do that, you can see them. The other thing you can do is put an empty can with the top and bottom off. Right, just kind of dig that into the lawn a little bit and fill it with water, and those bugs will float to the top. But they're a very common problem. They inject a venom into the grass while sucking the juices out, and that turns brown. And it's hard to distinguish between what's just dormant or drought versus what is insect damage. The way we know is by contrast right now is we get cooler temperatures, some dew at night, and some fall rains, everything greens up. But certain areas don't. If it's not greening up, chances are you have insect damage or it's suffered from some of the hot summer lawn diseases like summer patch, brown patch, things like that. And if those are happening, then it's time to start taking care uh, and making a plan to rejuvenate your lawn right now. Okay, and before we talk about how do we do that, what should we be doing at this time of year? I mean, there are times of year that you're going to focus on fertilizer, but what should be happening now? Okay, so the key thing is knowing what's happening in that growth cycle. And so uh, late August, September brings us cooler air and warm soil. In the spring, we have to wait for the soil to warm up. You know, the sun has to beat down on it and warm it up. The reason why soil temperature being warm is so important is this is the time to seed most effectively. It is the soil temperature that makes seed jump out of the ground and germinate. Whereas in the spring, it can take forever, it sometimes feels like, because it's just not warm enough. But once the soil temperature is above 15 degrees Celsius, that seed is going to germinate so easily. Now, the great thing about the fall is we get cool temperatures at night, which creates dew. So to get seed Next to the soil temperature to get seed to germinate is you need moisture. It just needs to stay moist. Not soaking wet, but it needs to stay moist, and it will grow nicely. And we want to give ourselves enough time before the leaves start falling off the trees for that seed to uh, grow and mature and harden off. That's generally two mowings. So if we get seed on right now and you get a high-quality seed, that's very important, Within about two to three weeks, you'll see that germinating quite nicely and starting to grow up, and you should be able to start mowing it 
carry on with your regular mowing, but those areas you'll find grow up tall enough to be mowed. And that's going to bring us into October, and you'll get great root growth out of that as well, and that will be able to be um, sufficient to let it get through the winter. And will that help those maybe brown or dry patches that you spoke about earlier? Yep, yep, exactly. And the key to doing successful seeding is going to be to scuff up the areas that are brown. So you want to take a hard tooth rake, and you just want to scratch it up. What you're trying to do is scratch up the top quarter inch of soil. So if you scratch that up, there is no need for buying and lugging soil around or bringing in other problem soil because that stuff could have weed seeds in it. So all you want to do is take your existing soil, scratch it up to get a quarter inch or so loose, sprinkle down your, your seed on top of that. And the amount of seed is what I always call, I use pepper on mashed potatoes. That's about the amount you need. You don't need to put a layer of You don't of need seed. to overdo it. No, don't overdo it. It'll choke itself out. Once you've done that, step on it, keep it moist, and it will grow. Wow, that's great. You mentioned leaves, and I know while the air is certainly cooler and a lot fresher, we're not quite there yet, but you know, those leaves are going to start falling very, very soon. What do we need to do? I hate to say it. I saw one on my Yikes. street. It's starting <laughs> to turn a little red. It's a type of maple tree that just seems to go through senescence earlier than others. So uh, contrary to the one myth that I said before, this is another one. So when it comes to leaves on the lawn, that's coupled with the other myth. You want to make sure that the lawn is mowed frequently at the proper height. People tend to want to mow lower to mulch leaves. And yes, it's a good thing to mulch leaves, but you cannot mulch a massive amount of leaves, like a thick bed of leaves on your lawn. Rake up what you can and then mulch the rest. But if you're mulching, the size of the leaves when you're done should be no more than a dime. The size of a dime is the maximum that a lawn could digest before you start ruining it again. What you're going to do by leaving too many mulch leaves on the lawn is for those to break down, that requires nitrogen. And if you've been fertilizing and your lawn's getting what it needs, you're depleting that nitrogen that the plant really needs to grow properly. So rake up those leaves, leave some of them on there, mulch them up good, but mow at the right height. Don't try to go lower to mulch it better. That's not going to be helpful. You're going to injure your lawn. When should we sort of plan that that last mowing is going to take place? So there is no specific date, and it varies each year. So it's a great question. Mow every week until the ground freezes. But what we want to avoid is when we get a late night frost or an early morning frost, stay off the lawn because those plants... The sugars inside and the moisture inside are frozen at that point, and we need that to thaw before you actually go on the lawn, or else you're breaking it. You're just breaking it like an icicle. So um, that time generally could be the end of October. It could be into November, depending on the weather we've had. Let's hope so. There was a few years ago, I remember Christmas Eve was about 23 degrees outside. Oh. So, um, but generally, we're looking towards the end of October. Don't stop. Just because kids go back to school doesn't mean that, you know, it's fall. It's, we've still got ample time. Wishful thinking, right? So what other tips and tricks do you have, just before we wrap things up, for maintaining your lawn during the fall that maybe we haven't touched upon yet? So... In the fall, people do see moisture in the morning, and it's important to keep watering. So we have to take stock and know when it's raining, but a lawn is so, like all trees, your, your, your key trees, your lawn, all require lots of moisture in the roots in order to create that great root system. So you may not see top growth. You may see leaves falling off a tree, but what's happening underground in the soil is the most important thing to remember is that those roots are developing and storing up energy that it's going to need next spring. So give it the water that it needs, even though it seems kind of odd and it's chilly outside. Don't put away the hose yet. Nice deep waterings once a week will be very, very helpful and essential to good plant health growth. Great advice. If our listeners want more information about Lawn Savers, where can they go? Well, it's easy. Just go to lawnsavers.com. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lawn Savers or Twitter at Lawn Savers. We love to post lots of great, uh, helpful tips, free for everyone. That's great. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you.
one last reminder from Kyle and Lawn Savers. If you need to get rid of crabgrass, the best way to kill it and prevent it from returning, Kyle says simply, pull it out. Over to Afwaba next in the latest report from Children First Canada. A report released earlier this week by Children First Canada revealed the top 10 threats to Canadian children and some of the things that made the list are quite disturbing. Now joining me to chat today about this report and what we can do moving forward to make sure that children have a better future in this country is Stephanie Britton. She is the Managing Director at Children First Canada. Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. So for context, can you just briefly explain the report, um, how long the report was conducted uh, before the results, of course, were released, and how necessarily you were able to discover these results in general? Mm-hmm. So the report uh, was just released, and we have been working over the past couple of months with the O'Brien Institute of Public Health at the University of Calgary to pull it together. And we did a version last year. So this is the 2019 version. And we focused on the top 10 threats to childhood and wanted to release them ahead of the election to really draw attention to Canadians with the reality of what's happening with kids of Canada today. Okay. And so in terms of the top 10 threats to childhood, there are a number of things that are listed. Number one is preventable injuries. Number two, that has garnered quite a lot of attention over these past couple of days, suicide. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit and how exactly uh, you were able to uncover this and and seeing that it is basically so high on the list? Yeah, certainly mental health would have been on the list last year. Um, Last year, it wasn't comprised in the exact same way in terms of threats. But when we look at suicide, uh, one in five um, children considered suicide in the past year in Canada. So that is very staggering. And it is the second leading cause of death for Canadian children. Okay, that is definitely disturbing. Uh, was the report able to uncover the reasonings behind uh, the kids thinking that the only choice that they had was to end their life? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a lot going on there. And certainly, um, I don't have all of the details for all of the reasons. But I do know that um, in 2016, survey conducted by the Kids Help Phone, they found, um, again, that one in five children... Um, Age 13 to 18 reported seriously considering suicide in the past 12 months, and 46% of those youth reported having a plan. Uh, so very serious issues here. Um, I don't uh, have all the issues off the top of my head, but I would imagine, you know, as we talk about some of the other issues on the list, like bullying, discrimination, some of these other factors, I'm sure, play into that number as well. Some of the other things that are definitely of concern. Bullying is on the list. Discrimination is number nine. Um, Immunization, number eight. So some of them are definitely health-related health factors. Um, Food security, or food insecurity rather, is is one that is quite high on the list on terms of number seven. Um, And then infant mortality. Poverty, number four on the list. I think that is um, definitely a concern as well, considering that Canada um, is one of the more wealthier countries. And to see that poverty is number four on the list in terms of top five, that is definitely of a concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we look at, you know, how do Canadians feel about how kids are doing, and I think what you mentioned about poverty is a good point, Canadians will rank Canada, you know, we must be number five or number 10 in the world. But the reality is we're 25th out of 41 when we compare ourselves to other um, similar countries. So we do have a lot of work to do in terms of you know, movement. And of course, like kids in Canada are better off than a lot, a lot of other places. But when we consider we're 25th, there's a lot better we could be doing. And certainly, as we talked earlier, some of these things are very concerning. So then moving forward, I know that this report was released um, ahead of, of course, the elections. Um, and kids are sometimes not the forefront or what is top of mind for voters. But how do we bring them now to the to the forefront in terms of having voters be more mindful of what kids are going through? Mm-hmm. Well, I think there's a few things. I think there's things that we, we can do as Canadians ourselves. And the first is having conversations like this where people do arm themselves with the proper information because I think people don't have all of that information to know what's happening and then recognizing that we can do something about it. Um, we have some resources on our website at www.childrenfirstcanada.com um, that talk about, you know, if a candidate comes through your door, ask them what are they going to do about some of these things. If uh, you're able to go to a debate, ask questions about these things. So people 
and decision makers aren't going to take these things seriously if people don't bring them up because they will represent who is going to vote for them. And as you just said, kids can't vote. Um, the other thing I would say is that we are calling on party leaders to look at three key policies that we think will make a difference. The first is appointing an independent federal commissioner for children and youth to really raise the profile in Canada. And when we look at the federal government, these issues fit in many different departments. So how do we really give it a proper focus? The second is a pan-Canadian strategy for children. So how do we bring this patchwork that happens in the federal government and the provincial government and really have some focused attention on these issues? And then the third is a children's budget. So where's the money going? Do we have enough money? Is it addressing the, the you know, the is, these issues, these top 10 threats to kids? So we would really encourage people to also be asking those questions. And we really think that they will help us get at some of these issues. And so we really want to see better attention so that we can address these things. Bringing it a little bit more grassroots, local level, what can maybe community members do? Some of these things on the list, um, again, are are quite of large concern. For example, uh, suicide or child abuse or even food insecurity. Kids might not be able to speak up and say, this is what's happening to me. What can community members do if they suspect that something might not be going well, something might not be going right with the child? Mm, this does get complicated. I mean, um, in Ontario, I, I would have said in the past maybe to speak to the child advocates, and I know that role has um, switched to the ombudsman. So I guess uh, that is one place that people can go um, to, you know, talk about some of the issues uh, related to kids with their challenges and, and they're not sure what to do. I know that that's definitely a complicated one because then how do you necessarily step in? How do you know you're not sort of overstepping? Um, it's definitely a difficult uh, issue to sort of try and tackle. But I think also, too, maybe mm-hmm. um, speaking with the teachers and educators, too, I mean, they're probably the ones that spend a, a good chunk of time with the kids. So they would probably see if there's um, a behavior shift going on with the child um, that maybe necessarily mm-hmm. community members might not see or even parents. So I, I think maybe educators, too, can also be on the lookout to see uh, what's going on with their kids on a, day, on a day-to-day basis. Right. And that's where, I mean, there can be a role, too, on the policy side, like you will see in a lot of schools. And I don't know how that pans out across the province, but that there's breakfast programs and things like that. So in places where kids aren't getting enough food or aren't getting the right types of food, at least in the Ontario context, there are some some programs. Now, I'm not sure if they're patchwork across the country, but if you don't have one in your school and you think that that's an issue, maybe having the conversations to figure out how do we make that a policy in our community. And again, that's where we think, you know, having some of these bigger pieces that we're talking about, like the pan-Canadian strategy, will help get at some of those things, get the proper attention, give it the the proper funding and address some of the patchwork that does happen across the country. Oh, I love it. Okay. And it all starts with there, getting the conversation going first. If the conversation doesn't happen, we're all basically in our little boxes. Nobody knows what's going on. That conversation always needs to continue. Uh, Stephanie, where can residents, parents, educators, even maybe kids who are listening to this, where can they go for more information to get more informed? So the best place to go is our website at www.childrenfirstcanada.com. And you can also follow us on social media. We're talking a lot about the report and we're using the hashtag Raising Canada. So it's an easy way, you know, regardless of what platform you're on to, to find out what's going on. And it is a good space to um, keep up to date about what's going on. We have kind of a tracker on our website that's against the threats about where the parties have released information related to the election, let's say, on mental health or obesity or hospitalization rates, these kinds of things. So if these are issues you care about, um, then you can you can track them and see as announcements are made uh, where the parties are at. All right. Awesome information there. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for joining me to chat today, of course, about this report. Hopefully, again, as I mentioned earlier, we keep the conversation going. We keep the kids in the forefront uh, so that we can build a better future for them in the country. Thank you, Stephanie. You're listening to The Feed on 105.9 The Region, where we share stories, issues, and events from across York Region, including a trip to the Dunlop Observatory in Richmond Hill. The Minister of Environment and Climate Change has named the David Dunlap Observatory a National Historic Site. Joining me to talk about this great news is none other than Richmond Hill Mayor Dave Barrow. Mayor Barrow, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. We have uh, great news to spread. (laughs) 
Yes. Okay. So you can tell the listeners, uh, just get us right into it. Talk to us about the exciting news. Well, we, uh, as you described, the federal government has uh, announced that Richmond Hill David Dunlap Observatory is one of eight new National Historic designations across Canada. So this is the first in Richmond Hill. Um, but the property is, for those that don't know, is right in the center of Richmond Hill, and the David Dunlap Observatory is, is there. It's a historical designation in the sense that um, it's been there since 1935. And uh, subsequently, uh, they sold the land, um, University of Toronto, sold the land, and uh, part of it is being developed, but the, the multi, the biggest portion of, of those lands is, and it's probably about, I'm going to say, eight to, you know, it's probably 40 acres <laughs> that uh, will remain just uh, as it is, and uh, which is a, a park area, so, you know, with the observatory in it. It's, uh, and we've now started moving uh, programs in, you know, astronomy programs and other things, and we will eventually be you know, creating a a park in that area, but it'll certainly be a a park that uh, is uh, of of interest and and not necessarily of any activity. You know, from a soccer field or anything like that. I know. Back in two thousand and nine, the city uh, deemed the DDO as a property of cultural heritage, and now ten years later, to have it named a national historic site, it's it's almost like it's come full circle. Can you let the listeners know what exactly it means now that it has been deemed a national historic site? Well, <laughs> that's a good question. It's only just happened, so uh, we're trying to get our act together here too. Is it's uh, as you said, the uh, heritage value, uh, obviously because of its age. Um, but also too the fact that um, you know this this will uh, attract people to our community and our city, uh, but it'll also uh, create a lot of activity around the uh, the park uh, for those who live in in Richmond Hill. So it's um, it's it's a it's an interesting process. Um, I know from uh, our point of view, and, and uh, Councillor Godwin Chan was uh, whose ward it is in, and everything uh, started us off on this process, and we went through our federal friends, our members of Parliament, over a number of years, and um, and it came to fruition. So it it's uh, it's very proud to be, to own a national <laughs> heritage place. Uh, but as I said, it's just something. It's, it's part of Can- Canadian history and. Uh, it's now part of our city. I know that moving forward, even though it is quite in the early stages, um, maintaining the site and in terms of still cooperating with residents in the community to make sure that it is still accessible to those who wish to um, be a part of it. And you were mentioning that it's 40 acres. Those who want to maybe build on the site, would that be something that would be in the talks in the future or the complete area of 40 acres would maintain um, national historic site status, if you will? Yeah, our land will be the national status. There, there's houses being built on the other half of that property on Bayview, so it's being, uh, you know, part of it is being developed. But that that was part of the process that we went through in order to maintain, you know, more than half of the site uh, as uh, belonging to the to the uh, city, and then subsequently seeking its uh, its national uh, status. Right. Okay. And so then for listeners who may not know, I mean, they've heard about the David Dunlap Observatory, but maybe those who may not have come to it. Can you maybe just touch on maybe one or two notable things that the observatory is known for? Um, I know there are a number of things, but maybe the the things that pop into your mind um, first. Well, it's the, uh, as I understand, um, reflector telescope, the Mm -hmm. largest uh, one in uh, in uh, certainly in Canada. And the second largest in the world. That was in 1935. So I'm sure there's some others have been built since then. But you know that's that's the history of it, mm-hmm. uh, essentially. And so uh, it was used by uh, U of T. It was a teaching instrument by U of T, and then uh, they chose not to continue that. We have programs there, um, and I know that there's a couple of uh, organizations. Um, Astronomy groups that uh, have been uh, having programs in there also, you know, so people can visit them and see uh, some work. There was some other work being done um, 
by, uh, I, I think it was, um, I think it was U of T, but on behalf of someone else before they actually turned it over to us for, um, for just, I, I'm, I'm assuming that there, you know, as we, as the world changes, we always talk about, and it's interesting because it's the Minister of Environment and Climate Change and the Minister for Parks. <laughs> so there's a lot of things that can be do- done with, with a, uh, an obstacle like that to be, uh, you know, to maybe tra- trace some, uh, some of the, the climate changing and, and the environment changing, you know, that, uh, that happens. On a regular basis here, apparently now. <laughs> Not <laughs> yeah. only in the city of Richmond Hill, but I all know. over Canada. <laughs> yeah, I definitely agree with you there. Um, is the observatory open to the public twenty four seven, or do you have to book in advance in order to get a tour of the site? Generally, you have to. Uh, we, we have events, so we will advertise the events when they are. But other than that, uh, there are programs there. So when when they're in that and. You, you can't kind of just wander through the place in, in the buildings itself. You can, the, the property, you can wander anywhere you want. The rest of it is, uh, is, is programming. Um, and that's what we've been using it for in the last little while. Um, and I know that now that it's been deemed a historic site, there's probably going to be a lot more foot traffic in the observatory in the next coming days or even weeks. A lot of people that aren't aware that it's even here exactly. in, in Richmond Hill. So this will help us to, uh, attract, uh, People from Richmond Hill and people who uh, would find this very interesting. And I was uh, there about um, oh, two or three weeks ago with my grandkids, and they were in awe, you know, just to see it. So uh, I'm sure there'll be a lot of families that want to spend some time there with their children. Definitely, it's uh, it looks like already a family-friendly place, and I uh, can't wait to see the great things that will be continuing to happen at the observatory uh, moving forward. Thank you so much, Mayor Dave Barrow, for taking the time to speak with me today about this exciting news. Well, thank you very much uh, for being interested in our city. Thank you. This is The Feed on 105.9 The Region. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Remember, if you missed any part of our show, head over to 1059theregion.com. For a replay, our music coordinator, Christina Lavecchia, has been busy in her search for new music. Here she is with Miles Marcus. All the way from New Jersey, music artist Miles Marcus joins us in studio. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So this is not your first time in Toronto. Uh, you've moved here to the city right out of college after being signed to an artist development deal. How was that experience for you? It was probably the best humbling and learning experience for me. Um, right after college, I was at Berkeley College of Music, and then I got signed to an artist development deal, and I literally packed my bags one day with um, the producer I was working with, and we drove to Canada. And he's like, yeah, we're going to be here for the whole month. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm like, okay. So yeah, I basically I slept on a couch for about a year wow. in the studio. And yeah, and I just honestly, I learned how to really write and learn how to produce and it was just it really humbled myself and also you know made me really dig deep in the songwriting part of you know my music so it helped with the creative process yes definitely definitely with the creative process at a young age you started working with Rory royalty hamilton renowned record producer and songwriter he's worked with big names like britney spears michael jackson nsync and cheetah girls was it nerve-wracking for you at first to work with him it was because I actually, how I met him, um, my vocal coach, Sal Dupree, introduced me to him. And at that time, he just left Capitol Records. And, you know, he didn't work with independent artists at that time. So it was nerve wracking for me. I've never worked with a major producer like that before. Um, and we actually, after the first time I recorded with him and we produced, you know, the first song, we, we actually became really good friends and we ended up, you know, releasing more music and yeah, it just turned out to be a great experience. I'm sure things have changed for you being in the industry at such a young age, probably been in the industry for maybe about over 10 years now, I would yes. say. What has surprised you the most about being, um, or about the music industry? You know, when I first started, it was a totally different um, you know, the whole idea of getting signed to a record, record label was the main thing. You want to be signed to a record label. Now, being an independent artist is cool. It's a cool thing. You know, you can create your own music in your room, literally record it, and then put it out and market it yourself. 
So it's totally different now because now the independent artist is, you know, battling against the major labels because we're doing it ourselves. Ourselves, I'm sorry. So it's it's very different than when I first started. And you started um, actually, I guess, your career putting YouTube videos um, first, I guess, of covers, and then you started your more original work. Yes. Yeah, so, like when I was little, I always loved performing other people's music, other artists' music, music, and basically, I just started recording covers, and that led to me writing music and writing songwriting, and but writing, actually, I'm sorry, uh, recording covers was really the first thing. So. And do you come from a musical family at all, or? Surprisingly, I don't. <laughs> so you're the first musician. Yes. Supposedly, my grandfather, he always wanted to be in the entertainment business, but he was yeah. a lawyer, and that was like <laughs> him being on during trial was like his way of entertaining Performing, people. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no one else, no yeah. one else. So it's actually surprising. Your latest single, Nightmare, is out now. It's doing well. The music video getting over seventy thousand views on YouTube. So watching the video, it's pretty dark. Scenes I'd probably see in a horror film. Yeah. So uh, for listeners who are not already familiar with the song, some lyrics are, I'm in a prison inside my mind. Can't make it to the door. These dark hallucinations keep unsettling me. You're not welcome anymore. What was the driving force behind the lyrics and the music video? So I actually wrote that song in Toronto. Um, you know, in, in the studio, there was a, you know, a box of edibles there. Uh, and I guess I chose the wrong one. And it was a, it was a nightmare. And things were, I saw faces on things. And I felt like it was just, I was like in a nightmare. So that's how I felt. And that's how, that's why I wrote that song. Well, that's a, yeah, yeah. I would not have thought that. I know, I know. I'm telling you, it's an experience. It's an experience. <laughs> I'm telling you, I do not do drugs. <laughs> so um, to catch Miles' uh, video for Nightmare, you could head over to his YouTube uh, channel, which is um, Miles Marcus. In honor of your latest release, Nightmare, mm-hmm. we're going to play a little game called Biggest Nightmare, 105.9 The Region Edition. Ooh, so I'm going to give you two situations, and you're going to tell us which scenario would be more of a nightmare for you, okay. or scare you the most. So encountering a mouse or a snake? A snake. Is that like just a general fear or just like... (laughs) I mean, I'm not like really like scared of snakes, but I mean, compared to a mouse or a snake, yeah, definitely a snake, yeah. Walking the edge of a building or being in a confined space? Hmm, that's hard. Uh, I would say, oh my God, confined space after a while. I think that's like, I think I had actually a nightmare. Really? Actually, I was in a confined space, and I was like, oh my God, get me out of here. So I think I would say confined space. Yeah, it's always harder to get. You can't really get out of a confined space, so it's maybe more, I guess, yeah, terrifying. Like, I feel like if I was in like a box or something, that'd be like, that would be scary. Yeah. Dentists or doctors? I could deal with the dentists. Definitely doctors. Encountering Freddy Krueger or Pennywise the Clown? Mm. I don't mm. That's hard because you're both screwed. Both. Both gonna kill you. So, um, Pennywise, yeah, clowns creep creep me out. I think it's sometimes the way that the makeup's done too that kind of makes oh, the difference. Definitely, definitely. So, <laughs> that last movie. Was, was yeah, movie. they're coming out with the second one. Nightmare is out now. What are you most looking forward to? Any upcoming projects that fans or listeners can look forward to? So, I definitely will be releasing music soon. Um, I'm very excited about that. It's I know everyone asks me every all the time, when are you releasing more music? I said, you know, obviously it takes time. Um, there's definitely a process to it, especially when you're an independent artist and you want it to sound and you have the way you want it to sound and you have a vision. Um, so I'm definitely releasing music soon, which I'm really excited about. Uh, I'm going to be doing more performances and more music videos coming. So there's a lot to come. Um, I'm just really excited about that. So, In just a bit, you're going to perform for us here at the studio. You could catch the video of his performance and snippets of this interview on our york24-7.com site. But before we go, if listeners want to connect with you online and listen to more of your music, where can they find you, Miles? You can find me on Instagram. I have a link on there, which is Miles Marcus Music. Um, also on my website, which is www.milesmarcus.com, and it's M Y L E S because everyone does M I. Uh, also, it's on Spotify, which is Miles Marcus. 
uh, Apple Music. Uh, it's on my Twitter, which is MilesMarcus underscore also. I'm music coordinator Christina Lavecchia. You're now listening to Miles Marcus's latest single, Nightmare, right here on 105.9 The Region. I always was in the dark, just having in my eyes. Time, it's all in my mind. I see faces in the crowd, but they all look different now. Is it me? Do my eyes Is it real? It's just not sugar-coated fantasies swimming through my bloodstream. Have you seen? That's our show for this week. If you missed any part of the feed or have a story idea or community event to share, head over to our website, 1059theregion.com. I'm Tina Cortez. Thanks for listening.